good to be back with you this evening. Um, if you have your Bible with you, open with me to Psalm 117. Psalm 117. I want to look this evening at one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, um, Psalm 117. But before we read that this evening, I want to go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank You for this day. I thank You that uh, You have sustained us throughout the day, that we have the opportunity to be back together this evening to worship. And Father, I ask that You would help us as we uh, enter into this time of worship, that You would help us to see Your Son clearly in the text. Uh, Even though we'll be preaching from an Old Testament text this evening, Lord, uh, we know that Your Son is in every verse and in every book and every chapter of the Bible. So, Father, we ask that you would help us to see him tonight. We ask that uh, you would help me, uh, go with me, and uh, help me to say only that which is in line with your word. Uh, And anything else that that might uh, find a a way to creep in, I ask that you would um, put put that out and put that aside, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all nations. Laud him, all peoples. For his loving kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord is everlasting. Praise the Lord. Now, this is a very short psalm, as we see. Uh, in fact, it is the shortest of all the psalms. Uh, not only is it the shortest of all 150 psalms, it is the shortest chapter in the entire Old Testament. Not only is it the shortest chapter in the entire Old Testament, it is the shortest chapter in the entire Bible. Not only is it the shortest chapter in the entire Bible, but it is the exact center chapter in all of the Bible. There are 594 chapters preceding it, 594 following it, making this the 595th chapter in the Bible. Now, I tell you all of that to tell you that this this, uh, psalm, this chapter of Scripture, is, as it were, at the heart of Scripture. It is, as I see it, at the heart of Christianity. And that's not by chance or coincidence or random arrangement, but I believe by God's sovereign ordination that He intended for Psalm 117 to be at the center of the Bible. Because so often we have a tendency to make things more difficult than they are. We have a tendency to try to uh, complicate things and and, and make them uh, more, more tedious than what they truly are. But if we get down to it, if we get down to the the basics of Christianity, down to the very foundation of all that it means to be a Christian, it's this. Worship. Worship. It's worship of God. That is what is at the foundation of all that we do as believers, of all that we do as churches, of all that we do as people who are living in Christ, is worship. And that's what is at the heart of this text, is worship of God. I want to just take this one verse at a time, and in fact, one sentence at a time, one phrase at a time. Look with me at verse 1, and then we'll skip down to the end of verse 2. In verse 1, it says, praise the Lord. At the end of verse 2, it says the same thing, praise the Lord. Now, what we see is that the psalmist, presumably King David here, sort of bookends all that he's going to say. All that he's going to say falls in between these two things, praise the Lord and praise the Lord. So at the beginning of our Christian life and at the end of our Christian life, praise of the Lord should be what highlights the entirety of what we do. I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31, which says, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, 
do it all to the glory of God. Now, Paul could have chosen any number of things to, to string together there. He could have said whether you're singing, whether you're preaching, whether you're reading the Bible, whether you're praying, whether you're making tents as Paul did, whatever, uh, whatever different things he could have uh, strung together. He chose those two things, eating and drinking. Now, why do we think that is? I would submit that it was because those are the most basic and fundamental elements of living. If you've been alive for a few days, you know that you have to have some food. You know that you have to have some water. Those are the most basic things of life. And Paul says, even if you're doing the most basic things of life, let them be under the glory of God. Now, I don't know about you, but it's not very often that I drink a glass of water and think, wow, the way, the way these molecules are put together, and it's just so refreshing, and I, I just want to praise God for this glass of water. We often take things for granted. Even the small things in life, they're given to us by God. James chapter 1, verse 17 says, Every good gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow due to change. Every good thing that you and I have in our life, whether it's our home, our job, our vehicles, the blessing of children and grandchildren, or uh, maybe even great-grandchildren, the blessing of a spouse, the blessing of a family that is together and in unity with one another, the blessing of a church family, the blessing of God's Word, the blessing of the ability to pray to Him, all of those things are given to us by God. Everything we have is by and from God. And so that's why King David here says, praise the Lord. In the beginning of verse 1 and at the, at the end of verse 2, he says it again, praise the Lord. Just in case we had fallen asleep somewhere between verse 1 and the end of verse 2, he reminds us of what he's talking about. Praise the Lord. Now notice with me what he says here in verse 1. Praise the Lord, all nations. Laud Him, all peoples. Now this word praise in, in the first is very similar to the word laud in the second stanza there, verse 1, but it's a little bit different. The idea in this first word for praise, the Hebrew word, is to praise Him publicly. To let there be a public proclamation of our worship of God. That's what we do when we gather in the Lord's house each week. That's what we do when we sing a song and post it on Facebook so that people can be blessed by the singing of a, a, a hymn. That's what we do when we preach the Word. That's what we do when we teach in a Sunday school class. We're living publicly for the glory of God. We're publicly proclaiming something about the Lord. And that's what's at the heart of this first word, praise. It is to live in the public sphere for God. Not to have some sacred, secular divide of, well, I'm going to have my church life over here, and I'll act like a Christian here. I'll do all the godly, Christian-esque things here. But then on Monday through Saturday, I'm going to live twice as much like the devil than I ever lived like Christ on Sunday. That's not the idea of Christian living. The idea behind Christian living is that we are living for Jesus 24-7, 365, that He has come to live the life that you and I could not live, to die the death that you and I deserved. And because of that, I want to live the entirety of my life for Him. Everything I do, everything I say, everything I think, everything I act upon, I want it to be in line with His will and pointing toward Him. That's the idea behind this first stanza is to praise Him publicly. To live a life for Him that is unashamed. And that's, that's further denoted here by this, uh, this, this call, the extent of the call here. Praise the Lord, all nations. 
In other words, every person on the face of planet earth is called upon to worship this one true and living God. And I want you to note with me too, and no matter what translation you're reading from, in verse 1, it doesn't say praise a Lord. Praise whatever Lord of your choosing. Praise whatever God of your choosing. We're just going to leave this as an open theistic kind of idea. That's not what the Bible says. It says praise the Lord. There is a certain note of exclusivity here that there is one true and living God and He is presented in this true and living book. Praise the Lord. And again, He issues that call to all nations. So that is to say that the Muslims are no longer to worship their false gods, but they are to worship the one true and living God. Those who are following human, uh, human secularism are not to uh, worship their false idols, but are to worship this one true and living God. Any idol that would possibly take the place of uh, the throne of our heart is to be dismantled and replaced with the Lord as the one true and living God who is worthy of all of our worship And as verse 1 says, all of our praise. Praise the Lord. And again, I just want to encourage you as I did just a little bit this morning. As you're going through this season of change and whatever the Lord has in store for you as a church body, as a church family in the days to come. Let this be what guides you. Praise the Lord. Whatever else may come, you're going to be able to stand against all the fiery darts of the devil if you have this as your foundation, praise of God. Praise of God. No matter what else, be sure that you don't lose this. That you don't lose a joy in Christ. You don't lose an excitement of what God has done for you. How is it that an older man can love the Lord more than he did when he first came to Christ? How is it that an older woman can cherish the Lord more than she first did when she came to Christ? It is by regularly praising the Lord, regularly remembering what He has done. And so even if you don't feel like worshiping, that's exactly the time to worship. Because that encourages you to worship all the more as you fix your eyes upon Jesus. I'm reminded of the old hymn that says, Fix your eyes or turn your eyes upon Jesus, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. So the more we look at Him, the more we praise Him, the more we make much of Him, the easier it will be to do that in the, in, the, in, in the days of difficulty. Praise the Lord, all nations. In the second stanza, we see this word laud him in the translation I'm reading from. Laud him, all peoples. Now, this word laud is a little bit more intimate. It's a little bit closer to the ground. It's to say, even in your private life, worship God. So again, don't just worship him publicly. As we touched on this morning, don't just look good and play the part but actually have deep down in the roots of the soil of your heart a love for God, a a true joy that is rooted in Him. Worship Him or laud Him, all peoples. And even this phrase, all peoples, in the first we have all nations. What are nations made up of? People. In the second phrase, we have worship Him or laud Him, all peoples. And so in the first, uh, first stanza of this, it's almost as though it's saying, worship Him, United States. Worship Him, state of Kentucky. But then in the second phrase, it says, Worship Him, all the individual members of the state of Kentucky. All the individual families, all the individual households that make up the, the, set, the, the county of Greene County and the county of Taylor County. This is, getting more, this is getting closer to home. This is actually opening up the front door and pulling back the windows of your home and saying, What are you doing in your home? Worship Him 
there. Worship him privately. I love that King David has this in mind that he, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he pins this psalm, is calling us to worship God both publicly and privately. Secondly, look with me at verse 2. For, for. Now, anytime that we see the word for or therefore or some kind of conjunction, that's an indication to us that what we're dealing with is, is what's known grammatically as a conjunctive syntam or a disjunctive syntam. If you have the word but, then it's going to be a disjunctive syntam, which means that a syntam is just kind of a fancy grammatical word that means that uh, you have two lines of thoughts that are joined together by this uh, conjunctive or disjunctive word, but or for or whatever. So if you have that, you understand that what's to follow is inextricably linked to what preceded. So here in verse 2, it says for. So that should clue us in on whatever comes after this is going to be linked to verse 1. So in the back of our mind, let's, let's tuck that back there that verse 1 is calling us to praise God, right? Verse 2 says for. For. Here's why we're called to praise God. Here's the, the basis. Here's the foundation for our praise of God. For His loving kindness is great toward us. And the truth of the Lord is everlasting. Now if you're reading from the King James Version, that word loving kindness is translated as merciful kindness. Or if you're reading from the English Standard Version, it is translated as steadfast love. In a lot of other translations, it's translated as it is in mine, as loving kindness. That God is merciful. We're told in Lamentations that His mercy is new every morning. That I don't have to live on yesterday's blessings. I don't have to live on yesterday's mercies. I don't have to live on yesteryear's graces. But I can live in the grace and mercy that God has given me today. That the reality that I woke up this morning is mercy enough. I didn't deserve that. I didn't deserve another day of life, but God has granted me another day of life so that I might live for His glory. That is why we exist. At the very foundation, at the very root of our existence is this worship of God. In other words, if you're not worshiping God, you're wasting your life. If you're not living for God, you are wasting the days that you have on this earth. You're just wasting them. Now, I don't know about you, but in these days when milk costs way more than it ever should, we're a little bit more careful with our finances than maybe we were five years ago or ten years ago. And understanding that the days are short and eternity is long should help us to orient ourselves to be a little bit more careful about how we spend our days. Here we're told that His loving kindness is great. His mercy is great each and every day that we have on this earth is a gift. It is something undeserved, unearned. And it doesn't just say that His mercy or His love, His kindness, His patience toward us, His steadfastness, His faithfulness. It doesn't just say that it's alright. It's, it's good. It's, it's tolerable. No, it says, for His loving kindness is great. It is great. Great is our God. Great is thy faithfulness, as the old hymn says. Morning by morning, His mercies are new. Great is thy faithfulness. And not only that, 
King David doesn't just leave it hanging out in the abstract saying, God's really great. I wish you knew something about it. Oh, if only we could know something about it. He says, for his loving kindness is great toward us. Toward us. Now, how incredible is that? I, I think if we, if we go back a few psalms to Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4, he says, as I consider your handiwork, as I consider all that you've made, as I look up and see the beauty of the stars, as I look out and see the, the lushness of the green grass, and I uh, see sometimes clouds that feel like I could reach out and touch them, and yet they're way too far for me to ever do that. As I look out and see the beauty of the universe that you, O oh God, have created, who am I? Who am I? Who am I that you would be mindful of me? Verse 2 has that same kind of attitude at heart. For his loving kindness is great toward us. Who am I that God would ever be merciful to me? Who am I that God would ever extend any such grace toward me? It's incredible. As I think back over my life and the sinfulness and the waywardness, and as I call it, the cosmic treason against my Creator. All that I deserve, all that I have earned, is death. And an eternity under the wrath of God. See, so often we have a misunderstanding of what hell is. We have this misunderstanding that hell is going to be, uh, that, 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 that heaven is God's uh, throne, and, and that's where He rules and reigns, and then hell is the devil's throne, and that's where He rules and reigns, and He's going to be down there with a pitchfork ruling and reigning. That is not the case. The devil was cast out of heaven and was sent to hell as his punishment. Hell is a place not where the absence of God is felt, but where the absence of His grace is felt. You see, there's going to come a day when God is always extending out His hand in mercy, saying, come to me, come to me, come to me. And with the other hand, He's holding back His wrath, but there will come a day when He, rele- he moves that hand and releases the wrath upon sin and sinners. And then it will be an eternity of wrath. An eternity of rightly due, of equitable justice. But for now, for those who are in Christ, we rest in the fact that His loving kindness is great. And it's great toward us. But not only that, that's reason number one that we're called upon to worship Him. That's reason number one that each and everybody in this room, each and everybody in this county, each and everybody in this state, each and every person in this nation, each and every person on this globe is called to worship Him. That's reason number one, because of His love, because of His mercy, because of His goodness. If we were to take one of the attributes of God, let's just take His love, for example, and think and ponder about how great His love is. We could think about that for all the days of eternity. And yet not even get to the foothills of the Everest of how beautiful that love is. His loving kindness toward us is great. That's reason number one to worship Him. But there's a second reason. And the truth of the Lord is everlasting. Now if you've had your eyes open and haven't lived under a rock for the last five years then you know that over the last five years or so, the phrase uh, fake news has come up. Fake news or false news. That there's all this speculation as to what's true and what's not. Everything gets fact-checked anymore. But as my question's always been, who fact-checks the fact-checkers? 
But nonetheless, there are constant speculations as to what's true and what's not. You don't know what news stations to listen to anymore. You don't know what newspapers to pick up anymore. You don't know what radio stations to listen to anymore. You don't even know what kind of preachers you should listen to anymore because there are so many preachers, as we talked about this morning, who are so busy looking good that they're not busy focusing on the God who is good. But here at the end of verse 2, we're told something that should be such an encouragement to us. The truth of the Lord is everlasting. So no no matter what else the world tells us, no matter what other falsities come up in the world, no matter what else might seem uncertain as to whether or not we should trust it, we can trust the Word of God. We can trust the Word of God and every word in the Word of God. We can trust it. It's all yes and amen in Christ. Everything has been fulfilled in Him or will be fulfilled in Him. Everything is about Jesus. And we can trust it. We can trust that it is true. That God has not lied to us. He has no reason to lie to us. He's not held responsible by us. And therefore, He has no reason to tell us a lie so that we might think better of Him. He tells us the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Now, I've often heard that Christianity is a made-up religion. But if that's the case... Now, I don't know about you, but as a person, I don't want to make something up that doesn't make me look very good. Imagine for a moment that you have somebody who is an avid bowler, and they say, oh, I I bowled terribly. But really, they bowled a 300. You're not going to have that. Now, you might have somebody who said, I bowled a 300, but they only bowled a 280. People tend to exaggerate in the way that it makes them look better. So if this is all made up, if all of Christianity is just conjured up by man, why would man have made a religion that made us look sinful and in need of a Savior? That doesn't make any sense. This is the truth. It is something that flies in the face of everything else in all of the world. Every other religion says do, while the Word of God says done in Christ. Every other religion says you've got to make yourself better, while the Bible says that we cannot make ourselves better, but Christ can. Now, if we have 10,000 voices trying to lead us in different directions, but ultimately they all lead to the same direction, and then we have one voice leading us in a completely opposite direction from all the rest, I think I'm going to go with the one that leads me somewhere else because everybody seems miserable. So I'm not going to follow after where everybody else is going because all that leads to is misery. It's pretty obvious from the world we live in. The people who have the millions of dollars and all the jets and all the nicest fleet of vehicles and the nicest home, those are the people who tend to commit suicide. And it's a terrible and tragic thing, but it's because they're not trusting in the Lord. They're trusting in all of their riches and all of the things that the world has to offer. But in verse 2, we're told that the truth of the Lord is everlasting. Nothing can ever come against it. Nothing will ever destroy the truth of the Word. They may take everything else from us. They may take our homes. They may take our cars. They may shut down the churches. They may do whatever they want to do to us. They may even murder us as martyrs. But they cannot take away from me the love of Jesus that I have in me. They cannot take away from me the salvation that I have in Christ. And Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So in other words, he says, 
I'm going to live for Christ here. And if I'm killed for it, I'm just going to have more of Christ there. The truth of the Lord is everlasting. It can never be undone. It can never be overshadowed. It can never be destroyed. That's reason number two for us to worship him, for us to praise him. And he says at the end of verse two, again, serving as bookends to this, praise the Lord. And again, note that there is an exclusive article there, the Lord. He doesn't lose his train of thought somewhere and say, praise the Lord. His loving kindness is great. His truth is great. Who was I talking about again? No, he says, praise the Lord. And then as he's talking about him, as he's writing about him, as he is doing what the Psalms are, he's very likely singing this. As he's singing about this God, his praise begins to ring off the walls and come back to him all the more. And he's just getting more excited as he goes. Praise the Lord. Oh, and did I mention praise the Lord? And if it's in your translation as it is in mine, at the end of that, there's an exclamation. And so he's actually following what his own command is back at the beginning of verse 1 to praise the Lord publicly. He's not just saying, hey, you should really praise the Lord. The Lord's really good. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to kind of whisper this softly so people don't hear me. I don't want them to think ill of me. I don't want them to think I'm crazy for this. But there's an exclamation. It's as though he's opening up the front doors of the church and screaming, it, hey, praise the Lord. Everybody within earshot, everybody who has ears to hear, praise the Lord. He is worthy of of your praise. This is how we should be telling others about the Lord. Not, a, not ashamedly, but we should be unashamed of the gospel. Romans 1.16 is another one of my favorite verses. It says that it is the, the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Not my techniques of preaching. Not my ability to put it in just such a way to prick the heart. It is the gospel. It was Charles Spurgeon who said that someone else may preach the gospel better than I can, but no one can preach a better gospel than I can because if we're preaching from this book, we're preaching the gospel. And so we have neighbors and co-workers and family members and friends. And if you've been alive long enough, maybe even people you consider enemies who are lost and dying and going to hell. And at the end of verse 2, David is setting an example for us of how we're to call people to praise the Lord. I don't just want my kids to go to heaven, although I certainly do. I don't just want my wife and myself to go to heaven. I didn't come to the Lord in salvation and say, well, I'm in. Not worried about anybody else. But I want all of my friends and family and loved ones and co-workers and neighbors to taste and see that the Lord is good. And that happens by people opening their mouths and telling people about the gospel. And here at the end of this, David sets that example. He is a king. And he was considered one of the greatest kings, one of the strongest kings, one of the mightiest kings. And yet he's not saying, praise me. Look at how good I am. Look at how strong I am. He's saying, praise the King of kings and the Lord of lords. For he alone is worthy of your praise. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who is for us what we could never be for ourselves. And we ask that you would help us to praise him each and every day because he is worthy. And Lord, if there's anybody here this evening who has grown cold, who has grown lukewarm over the years, who has grown indifferent or calloused toward the amazing grace that you offer in Christ, would you break down those strongholds and help them to have a renewed sense of joy in you and a renewed sense of fire and zeal to tell people about how wonderful you are. Would you do that this very night for our good and for your glory? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.